Good morning, everyone. My name is Vicki. I'm the student ministry director here at Legacy. Whether you're among the many people joining us online this morning or on television, or the few that have braved the weather and come to the sanctuary, we're really glad to spend this hour together today. We're nearing the end of this series of ancient 10 words, the 10 commandments, to discover what they still have to teach us and how they challenge us today. In our first week, Brandon unpackaged the first commandment, you shall have no other gods but me, reminding us that we become like the things we worship. Then we jumped all the way to number 10 to see that we should not covet or desire anything our neighbor has, because it's unhealthy to desire something someone else possesses. It can lead us to sin, to break our connection with God and each other. Last week, we were challenged to learn a rhythm of Sabbath and rest and restoration in our lives to observe the Sabbath day and remember that we are not just what we produce. In high school Bible study a couple weeks ago, we were talking about how we know right from wrong, like how and who sets our ethics and our sense of morality. And one gal said, well, at least we can agree on the Ten Commandments as a starting place. Yeah, good, good thought, good answer. I always have to push them a little bit though, so I said, yeah, you'd think, but how well are we all observing the Sabbath day and keeping it holy? And they kind of wrinkled their noses. Another guy said, well, maybe not that one, but like, thou shall not murder, we're good on that, right? I mean, they're not wrong. In real life, many of us would maybe get about a 70% grade at keeping these commandments. Following all 10 seems like a tall order. The one we want to work, look at today, though, seems on the surface like something we can definitely do. Let's read in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, I don't mean to brag, but like Brandon was saying earlier, I have never whittled a piece of wood into the image of any animal of sea, sky, or land and declared it to be my God. I've never purchased, uh, uh, you know, a, like golden or silver uh, item and decided that it could hear my prayers or help me through life. So if this is what that passage is talking about, not worshiping idols the way they used to in ancient Israel and the surrounding areas, then I think I'm doing okay. And I'm guessing you probably are too. But another interpretation of this command could mean that we aren't supposed to contain our infinite and holy God into the image of anything in creation. No material thing could adequately represent or in any way take the place of the personal presence of our invisible God. We do have many sacred symbols and objects that remind us of God and help us worship as Christians, but I think we generally do pretty well to remember that the object itself does not contain the presence of the divine. Commentaries on why God would forbid such a thing say that um, we don't get to define God. Only God defines God so we don't get to make something in God's image. However, this clearly was a temptation for the early Israelites to avoid idol worship. In fact, immediately after receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites make the golden calf and break this commandment in their first act of disobedience. We see many biblical writers condemning idolatry in both the Old Testament and the New. Sometimes they'd even ridicule the very notion of worshiping idols, like this in Psalm 115 says their idols are merely things of silver and gold shaped by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak and eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear and noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel and feet but cannot walk and throats but cannot make a sound. And those who make idols are just like them. 
as are all who trust in them. Modern readers could echo this ridicule. It seems primitive, perhaps even silly, that people would carve an image and conjure up a whole set of sacrifices and rituals and how to access the spiritual forces in the very thing that they made with their own hands. That is, it seems silly until we start to interpret this command with modern sensibilities. We have to translate all of these stone-carved rules into our digital age. Idols are not always crafted objects of silver and gold or wood carvings. They're not always tangible objects at all. The broader meaning of idol is anything that we worship, anything we treasure, anything that is less than God, but we treat it with this level of reverence that should be for God alone. Those are the idols in our lives. In Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit God, he defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So whenever our focus and our priorities are on lesser things, that we hope will fulfill our deepest desires and needs and give us that peace and joy we seek, we're in danger of breaking the second commandment to not worship idols. Modern day idols could be anything we go to great lengths to seek, like comfort, wealth, success at work or relationships, things that consume our thoughts and plans, like food, health, and approval of others. Things that bring us joy or become more than just a hobby, like entertainment, technology, and sports. We'll go to great lengths to seek or obtain or maintain or take delight in these things. We think if we could finally get enough of this or that, it would bring us true joy and peace. Many of them are even good things, but they're not God, and they don't deserve our worship. And they can't, in the end, bring us that peace that only God can give. So I thought maybe the second commandment would be when I could check off the list of hard rules to live by, but actually it can be pretty tricky. I was traveling last month, and uh, the last plane of my day didn't have a plug-in to charge my phone on. Of course, I've been playing games all day and listening to podcasts as I traveled. We were about half hour from landing in Pittsburgh when I realized I only had 12% battery power. And the panic and anxiety that began in me was swift and surprisingly big. Brandon taught us last week the word uh, nomophobia, the fear of being without your cell phone. I didn't think I usually suffered from that, but that day, flying with a dying phone, I felt it. I realized that my whole plan for getting to my rental house depended on my phone working. I was gonna call an Uber. The address was saved in my notes. I was depending on the map on my phone to reassure me that the driver was not driving into the woods to kill me, but was in fact going to the rental house. And if he wasn't, my only recourse was to use that phone to call for help. My anxiety was compounded by the fact that it was about 11.30 at night when we were getting in to this city I'd never been to before. So I was trying to troubleshoot, problem solve this dilemma, and all of the solutions I could think of also depended on using a phone. <laughs> like I couldn't come up with anything that didn't need the cell phone. And two things crossed my mind as I thought about this. One, how did people actually do things before we carried cell phones? Like I can't picture how travel worked before we had these tools in our pockets. And two, do I trust my phone as a means of security more than I trust God? This thought convicted me a bit because 
it's probably true. I do depend on my cell phone along with just my own general skills to navigate my day more than I depend on God for the day-to-day things. I tried to brush the conviction aside and reassured myself like it's just a religious logistical reality, right? I can't pray that God will book me an Uber, like I need to use the app. But it's not the logistical things that draw us to worshiping idols. It's the intentions and attitudes of our hearts that reveal true idolatry. I feel safe when my phone is charged, when I should be able to trust Jesus for my safety and protection, be assured that he will help me through. I was entertained and occupied that whole travel day by the apps and games and articles on my phone without giving any thought or time or headspace to Jesus or even the other human beings around me. So I did say a quick prayer that day, an apology to God on the plane, an apology for not like depending on him, only trying to think of my own solutions to this problem. After praying, I double-checked one more time that there was, in fact, not outlets under the seat. <laughs> and my seatmate, he noticed me twisting around, and he asked, do you need to charge your cell phone? And he handed me a cord that was connected to his laptop, and he let me plug in and charge off of his computer for the last 20 minutes of our flight. Nice guy, really. I hadn't spoken more than hello to him in the two hours we've been sitting next to each other because I was just looking at my phone. But for those last 20 minutes, we talked all about his freshman year at University of Pennsylvania. I wish I would have taken a little more time to get to know him. We might not be carving idols out of wood these days, but how much of our time and attention and trust and even love do we put into these microchip tools? If that definition of idol was anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, then for many of us, our phones have become idols. And maybe social media has too. We can mock with the writers of Psalms that those ancient idols were deaf and mute and immobile. But we have a modern day problem when our own techie tools, they in fact do hear and speak and travel with us. Those old statues may have had ears and no hearing, but now if I mention a product at breakfast, it's gonna show up in an ad on Facebook by lunchtime. And they definitely have mouths to speak. Rarely a day goes by without the voice of any number of YouTubers speaking from my kids' iPads. Hey guys, welcome to such and such. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button all day long. Our idols have gotten smarter and stronger, and I think their hold on us has become more insidious. My own screen time tracker says I average six hours a day on my phone. Last week I I logged 43 hours. That's like a full-time job using my phone and nobody's paying me to do it. In fact, I'm paying other people in a couple ways for that time. I hope I'm not the only one with those kind of numbers. <laughs> I would be embarrassed, but I'd love to take an informal survey later and see where your uh, phone hours are at, if you have your trackers on, or if you're online, maybe share your numbers in the, in the chat. These modern-day idols are powerful tools. It's no wonder they tempt us to worship these lesser gods trying to find our identity and our security and our meaning from these devices until they lose power and can do absolutely nothing for you. (laughs) But how can we as Christians obey this second command to not bow down to any idols? I don't think the answer is we have to throw our cell phones away, become Luddites, like rejecting all modern technology. I think the answer comes back to those attitudes and intentions of our hearts. Can you use a tool without worshiping that tool? Can you value a thing without letting it become more valuable to you than God? 
Can you be entertained or helped or informed by technology without allowing it to be the first or best or most important thing in your day? Realistically, we'll probably never log 43 hours a week in worship to God. But I can place more value, more weight, more importance on this hour that we get to spend together than on the hour that I'll sit playing Candy Crush on my couch later tonight. We can demonstrate with our lives, we can repeat in our hearts and know in our souls that our true identity, our true security, our only purpose and power in life comes from our incredible God who holds us, helps us, gives us hope and wholeness. Set apart God alone as holy and true in your life so that no other thing that beeps for your attention will be able to dethrone the king of your heart. Over the summer, our kids had a lot of free time this year, and most of it got spent on screens. Watching shows and playing games was their full-time summer job. Sometimes we'll discuss at supper, what was your favorite part of the day? And nine times out of 10, they would answer the thing that they did off screens that day. So whether they had played outside or played a board game or built Legos or invited a friend over or knocked out all week of their chores in 90 minutes, that ended up being the, the best part of their day. And I'd always try to point that out to them in like a total mom lecture mode, like, see? See what fun you can have when you're off your screen? But I want that message to seek into their hearts and my own, that the important stuff in life is not the online stuff. So as parents and grandparents and just adults in church, we have a really big responsibility to lead children in modeling good technology use and using these tools without them becoming idols. It's a difficult task for us adults, and I would argue it's even harder for kids. As most of us know, children and teens, they have low skills in impulse control. Those sections of the brain are still developing. They don't self-regulate well, which makes them really prone to easy addiction. These cell phones, and especially that giant hairball of social media, are the perfect things to entice them towards addiction. That little bump of dopamine you get when you have a positive response to a post, or you beat a level of a game, or you receive a message from a friend, that keeps us coming back again and again. Parents and caring adults try to guide kids in lots of areas of life, and this stuff is no different, the online and technology use things. Except it does sometimes play out a little differently. Maybe because we parents start from a disadvantage when it comes to understanding all the apps and social platforms. We're immigrants to this land. We didn't arrive in cyberverse until after high school or into adulthood. But the kids were native born into this world. They understand it way faster intuitively. They've never not known how to ask Siri or Google anything they wanted to learn about. I hope our church families are up to date on some of the dangers, the downsides of constant tech and media use for our kids. We know the external dangers of inappropriate contact and dangerous people and cyberbullying and the excessive amount of advertisements and media they consume. We know the internal dangers that students have an elevated risk of anxiety and depression and loneliness unhealthy lifestyles and sleep disruptions. I'm sure our families are doing all they can to mitigate some of those dangers. There's plenty of lists, you can find them online, of all the best practices of how to keep our kids safe. Really practical things like 
charge all your devices in the central room so no one's taking a phone to bed with them where it's gonna beep and wake them up. Or set downtime and app limits so the thing just shuts itself off after a certain number of hours. Make family meals a tech-free table and find other times in the week where you're off screen together. And then all the privacy stuff of making sure your settings are on and your location tracking is off. Make sure your kids know better than to share personal information online. All those practical things. I'm really glad they're teaching all of that in schools now. Elementary and middle schools have full classes just on safety online, which is really nice. It's not just the parents <laughs> nagging kids all day long. Those are good things to try to maintain appropriate boundaries. There's plenty more suggestions like them. But I want to suggest, while the boundaries are necessary, they're not the total solution. Whatever parents use to monitor online activity, whatever rules and time limits we set, whatever apps we pay for to make sure our other apps are not getting into inappropriate things, it's never going to be enough to fully keep your kids safe. I'm quite sure that you are never going to be able to outsmart your teens in tech espionage. This is their world. They will always find a way around your rule. On top of all of our best efforts to monitor and limit use, we have to constantly be helping our children become responsible and tech consumers on their own. Teaching them the skills to self-monitor, to make good choices, to report when necessary, and choose for themselves what is good and what is bad online behavior. Because we just can't oversee every click and um, see what they're doing on all of their apps. But we can, with God's best, we can help disciple their hearts towards their better selves. Eventually, we have to trust them to do it on their own. So I guess if you still have kids in the house for now, trust, but go ahead and verify too. So when your kids do get into troubling things online, and most of them will, maybe instead of immediately deleting the social apps or taking the phone away, you talk about it. Talk about it a lot. Talk about all the things that can go wrong in the cyber world. Talk about what to do with mean people and toxic friendships, whether it's online or in real life. How do you, should you even respond to a cruel comment? Talk about what it does to your heart and your health when you read or watch sexual content. Remind them constantly. Remind them that their identity is found in being a beloved child of God. Even if their Instagram post doesn't get a dozen likes, even if it turns out they're not going to be the next YouTube star, remind them that they are loved and liked, that no matter what's happening on their social feeds, their identity is found in God. Teach them that the words they say matter, and that counts for words spoken out loud or typed. Teach them that as Christians, we are called to be different than those around us that don't know Jesus. Train them to self-monitor if their online presence represents Christ well or not. Talk about all of it. And remember that it's real life to students. Folks my age or older would like to think that all this technology stuff is just a section of life, just an activity, just a tool. But that's not how younger people experience it. Online is often where life is happening for many of them. So these conversations with our kids, they can't be just one good lecture when you hand them their first phone. It has to be a lifelong, ongoing conversation about all the things. It's full discipleship of their hearts and their minds to help them integrate Jesus into all aspects of life. Our kids' ministry uses a theme verse of Proverbs 22, 6, 
that says, start children off on the way they should go. Even when they're old, they'll not turn from it. Kids are gonna be online for the rest of their lives. I don't think we need to protect or ban them from that world. I think we need to teach them how to live there well. One thing that you might try to help you stay in close communication is to show up often in that world with them. Parents and grandparents, I encourage you to be brave enough to enter the unfamiliar terrain of your students' online world. Watch some YouTubers with them, even the really dumb ones, which are easy to find. Uh, learn, to play, <laughs> learn to play some of their favorite games or take an interest in them, at least. If you're not gonna play, at least ask them what they're doing in that game. Demystify that whole realm of social media by entering it with your teens. Yeah, so you can keep an eye on them a little bit, which they'll hate, but also so that when things get weird in there, you're not starting off by speaking different languages when you try to help them untangle it. And in the meantime, you can model the behavior that you wanna see through uh, your own healthy interactions. It's no simple thing to navigate how to raise kids in a world that's different than the one many of us grew up in. Some things are better now, some things are probably worse, but it's certainly different. And of course our world is vastly different from the one that um, we get these rules from in the Bible, from uh, the laws of Moses and the wisdom of Jesus that gets passed on to us. But I don't think human nature has drastically changed in all of that time. And I know that God's nature certainly doesn't change from generation to generation. So many of these old stone-carved laws still bear relevance and wisdom for us now. We have many idols clamoring for our devotion and beckoning to our children. But there is still only one true God and putting our trust and faith into anything less than the real deal is gonna leave us wanting and frustrated. Let technology and your virtual online lives be a tool and a resource, but not an idol preventing you from worshiping the true God with your whole life. We haven't yet read the second part of the scripture for the second commandment. I wanna leave you with it today. Let's look again at Exodus 20, five and six. You shall not bow down to idols and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Parents, grandparents, even great-grandparents, our actions and behaviors are passed down to the next generation. Our worship of God or our worship of idols will not go unnoticed by our kids. And our attempts to follow Jesus truthfully, honestly, fully, and even online will bless not only ourselves but thousands of generations to come. You don't need to avoid all this new technology around us. It's probably gonna stick around, it looks like. But don't let it or anything else usurp God's proper place on the throne of your heart. Let's pray. Most gracious and powerful God, help us do away with any and all idols in our lives. Help us fix our eyes on you alone, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to be good examples for the generations coming after us of how to navigate this world in a faithful way. Amen. Thank you.